Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Hey, Look, I'm here I, too. Uh, I'm here <laughs> as well. I'm, I'm also We're here. helping, George. And we don't put on voices when we read ads. Look, we know you want to get to the podcast, <laughs> so we're going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories every damn week. Not what more art. do you people want from us? If Rihanna Giddens' aria code was every week, we'd be screwed. They hired a woman, ladies. <laughs> Come on. So, they, you got to start getting into so this. It's so good. Aria code. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's Check like, it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. And twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. Twenty bucks. That's less than what Oliver spends each week on pomegranate molasses and fancy tahini. That's true. That's not a joke. The the original ad had something about hair products. And I'm almost bald. So I don't understand what you're trying to go. (laughs) I mean, if we're going to talk about hair products in this room, I'm probably the one that consumes the most of everyone. So, yeah. So, ten bucks buys my hair products for a week, guys. You can do it. Don't think you can give? Oh, yes, you can. Simply review us on Apple Podcasts, share our Facebook posts, or retweet us. Most so of all, the retweeting is actually very environmentally sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Reduce your carbon footprint. Retweet. Exactly. Just use Especially if you use real birds. Over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And most of all, keep listening to America's talk radio show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. Live in the Lakeside Studio, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, tonight in Chalk Talk, it's an MLK celebration. We'll take a closer look at three notable artists, a composer, a singer, and a director, Plus, a recent article on the Daffodil Perspective, a website that champions gender equality in classical music, outlined, quote, the real reasons classical music is inaccessible and 10 easy ways to solve them immediately. We're going to tackle that list. Then, uh, two-minute drill prototype festival in the books. We'll take a look at that and lots of other things that you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. And, of course, you can get your voice heard tonight. On air, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories that we're talking about, 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score. Also post on that Facebook page as well. Oliver Camacho here with me in the Lakeside studio. This is the beginning of many sleepless nights for me. And it's it's not because we're finally reunited here in the studio, but... Uh, because the Australian Open started yesterday, uh, and they're on Australian time, which is not great ouch. with my sleeping schedule. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the matches begin like at eight o'clock in the evening here in Chicago and go to like six o'clock in the morning. So, <laughs> that is if rough. I want to watch them, not on delay, I've got to adjust like astronaut time or something, you know. <laughs> Weston Williams, how's your sleep schedule? Uh, pretty good. I I got to sleep in, you know, it's Martin Luther King Day, didn't have to go to Aww. work, you know. That is not what you're supposed to say. What? I got to sleep in because it's Martin Luther King Day. <laughs> you should have gotten up and, you know, written an angry letter at something racist. Uh, so. Oh my goodness. I'm thrilled that the uh, Chiefs are in the Super Bowl, of course, having oh, that that they've the selected Titans. who's going to play. Yeah, well, uh, Toby, will, of course, will be happy. I'm also equally happy that the Packers are not in the Super Bowl. I, I tend not to cheer against football teams. I think that's a little Bush League. Uh, but the <laughs> Niners are in, so uh, two so it's, weeks. it's not the Patriots? 
the, uh, the Patriots are long gone. Oh, wow. So Maybe I'll watch this year. I, I, who's doing the <laughs> halftime show? Do you know? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not. I, I don't know. <laughs> the motto? It, that, I, I asked. I uh, yeah, right. Remember the Renee Flem- Fleming Super Bowl? We'll bring that back in a couple of weeks, probably. Super Bowl is on February 2nd, so on February 3rd. We'll do a whole episode show. about people who sang the national anthem. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> Hour long discussion. <laughs> Just Renee Fleming. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Martin Luther King Day, of course, January 20th. If you're uh, listening live, if you're listening to the podcast, it's belated Martin Luther You missed King it. Day. Yeah. <laughs> or it's the orthodox date. <laughs> there, there we go. Yes, yes, observed. Um, so we're going to take a closer look at a composer, a director, and a singer tonight. That uh, you should know. That you should you know. Should, yeah. Maybe yeah. you don't know these people. You're going to know them now. <laughs> Yeah. We're going to teach you. <laughs> don't don't skip ahead to 2 Minute Drill, your favorite segment. Stay on this that's, right here. That's not till 9.40 p.m. Weston, yeah. uh, kick it off for us. Who's on your sure. MLK list? Well, uh, I, I want to preface a little bit by saying that uh, when Oliver initially sort of uh, pitched this uh, whole As segment, creative consultant. As creative consultant, <laughs> yes. uh, as, he, as he is, uh, he wanted to consultant, highlight yeah. um, uh, living, working uh, African-American uh, um, uh, Or just artists, black uh, artists. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, uh, I ignored him almost completely, uh, <laughs> and uh, I think to, to the better. Uh, it is still an African-American composer. Don't worry about that. Um, but I figure that in, in an, an art form like opera, where we want to encourage uh, diversity and uh, new voices and uh, up-to-date voices, I think it's just as important that we really um, look back at our history and find those voices that maybe had a harder time being heard in their own lifetimes. So with that in mind, I would like to talk about Harry Lawrence Friedman, who is a fascinating composer to me. He's very, very interesting. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, October 6th, 1869, and he died in uh, uh, March of 1954. Oh, that's so like a... four years after the Civil War he was born. Yeah, exactly. Four years after the end of the Civil War, as a black man, obviously an uh a time not super conducive to uh, opera companies offering uh, a black person a, a gig. To say the uh, least. To say the least. Um, he was raised in a fairly musical way. He played piano, organ, and he sang for church from a very young age. I believe he was the church organist from like age 10 or something like that. Um, but then when he was in his teens, he attended a performance of Tannhäuser. Uh, and like everyone who's seen Tannhäuser, it changed his life. Uh, and uh, uh, before too long, uh, he had started writing his own music. And by the time he turned 22, only a few years later, he had formed his very own opera company, the Freeman Opera Company, uh, in order to put on uh, his first opera, which is, by the way, the first known opera by an African-American composer. That's uh, Epithalia, or perhaps Epitalia, I'm not entirely sure, uh, in uh, Denver, Colorado, um, in 1891. This is also the first opera known to have been produced by an all-black opera company. So lots of firsts surrounding Harry mm-hmm. here. Um, this is sort of like a recurring theme in his life, you know, because he had, uh, uh, basically, he, he was very prolific. He wrote lots of stuff, but at essentially every turn, he kind of had to do it himself, right? Because no one was, you know, giving out uh, um, uh, spaces for a black artist to perform, especially not in a field like opera, especially, especially 
not in the conservative opera field of the United States in that era. Um, so he had he already had one opera under his belt in 1891. He did another one in 1893. Um, and in that same year, he started getting formal musical training under uh, the condu uh, conductor of the Cleveland Symphony at the time. Um, and that orchestra performed excerpts of his works and sort of raised him up in the public eye. He was very involved in education at various uh, historically black colleges and uni universities. He formed his own music school for a little bit. He was all over the place. Uh, but he's most known for sort of the Harlem Renaissance period of the 20s and a little bit beforehand. He wound up in Harlem in New York uh, in the uh, late 1800s, I believe, uh, or the early, early 20th century. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, it's suspected that he assisted Scott Joplin with Joplin's uh, opera Tremonisha, if you're familiar with that one, which is another one. I, I was tempted to talk about that one, but I really want to talk about uh, uh, Freeman a little bit for uh, reasons that would come apparent pretty soon. Uh, he founded another opera company in 1920, the uh, Negro Grand Opera Company, um, and it was uh, it had a lot of financial difficulties, but it, it premiered a number of productions that he composed. Uh, and in 1928, his opera Voodoo became one of the first operas by an American, not just an African-American, but an American period, to be broadcast over the radio, uh, which brought the piece to a lot of uh, national attention, uh, for better or worse. Uh, there were lots of uh, very, <laughs> shall I say, rough and racist reviews <laughs> of the piece, um, which, you know, is to be expected for the time period. But uh, there was a lot of positive stuff being said about it as well. And certainly that's the most uh, famous opera that sort of exists to this day. So let's talk a little bit about his uh, music. I had to front load the, the biography a little bit because he's very, very underperformed uh, right. and almost uh, entirely unrecorded. Okay. Uh, so there's one uh, excerpt, uh, well, there's a few excerpts from one revival of Voodoo from 2015 uh, that we'll hear in a little bit. Um, but he, he actually composed many, many more pieces than that. Um, we know of at least, uh, I believe it was 21 operas that he composed that are still in existence. These are not lost. They're um, under the possession of Columbia University. Okay. They're just lying there, waiting to be <laughs> seen. In his, time, in, in his time, he was known as the Black Wagner, um, hmm. which is in many ways very literal. Um, he wrote nearly all of his librettos, uh, as well as the music. He, uh, like Wagner, he created a, um, a massive operatic cycle of four operas, like the Ring Cycle. Uh, in this case, it was, um, uh, it's a cycle called Zululand, and it was never performed, even though there are 2,000-plus pages of score just lying there. Um, uh, I should say that in his lifetime, he didn't publish a lot of his music, which is one of the reasons, in addition to the racism, hmm. that uh, he's not performed a lot uh, um, uh, today. Um, but I would love to take this moment to really advocate for his music because he's just a historically significant composer, a lot of firsts, lots of precedents set, and he's got a really interesting musical style. So he was known as the Black Wagner, but that doesn't mean he really sounded very Germanic. He was actually very influenced by a lot of Italian and French opera, which was sort of in, the, in style in the U.S. at the time. But he also has lots of uh, uh, other sort of uh, folk influences mm -hmm. as well, particularly spirituals. Uh, there's some jazz in his operas from the 20s, especially voodoo. There's, um, there's uh, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of sort of what we would consider... 
uh, mainstream for the time musical sounds that would have been expected, but also those more complex rhythms that were more prevalent in the African-American community at that time. Um, it's also just kind of fascinating how many operas he worked, wrote uh, and that were explicitly about the black experience in America or even outside of America in the case of Zululand uh, in reference to the Zulu tribes of Africa. Um, and it's so unapologetic. And that's one of the things that I feel like uh, we tend to miss about a lot of uh, 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 black composers in that time period. They tend to, they often tend to get written off as, um, especially in the time period itself, they get written off as being imitative of European styles and uh, stuff that isn't necessarily quote unquote black. Um, but he put a lot of his identity and his conception of sound into his music and created a fusion that's really poly polystylistic, really unique, especially for the time period. Um, I just want to play a little clip. This is from uh, the opera Voodoo. Um, this is from that one revival I mentioned. This is a concert production of Voodoo, which is put on by Morningside Opera uh, in conjunction with the Harlem Opera Theater and the Harlem Chamber Players. Uh, and this is from June 26th in 2015 in New York City. And the... Um, this is the Voodoo Queen's uh, main aria from that opera. say that was uh, Janina uh, Burnett per performing that particular excerpt as the Voodoo Queen. And as you can hear, it's a really interesting mix of sort of the uh, high 19th century opera with a lot of interesting sort of uh, uh, jazz influences. The banjos feature prominently throughout the opera. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating piece and kind of unlike anything else you're hearing in sort of mainstream American opera at the time. And we have to remember, of course, in this time period, there basically was no really interesting <laughs> American opera going on, quite frankly. Uh, so this no. is a, a really important piece of history that is severely underperformed. I would l pay so much money to see the entire uh, four opera cycle of Zululand and just sitting there waiting for us to take it out, for a courageous opera company to take it up and just go for it. You know what I mean? Weston Williams, 
giving a shout out and more. <laughs> might I add? A much shout, more. a diatribe, if you will. An, an inspiring <laughs> uh, plea for a the call to of, action. A call to action. Harry Lawrence Freeman. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and of course Weston Williams uh, celebrating Martin Luther King Day with you in one of the ways that we know how in opera. Oliver, you're going to go after me, correct? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll speak very briefly about uh, the opera director, the theater director, the playwright, Taswell Thompson. Taswell Thompson, I met him a couple years ago at the Opera America conference. Brag. I, I, I'm, I, I brag only because he is the true definition of a theater renaissance man, in my opinion. Like, he has done more shows in the theater than I've had hot dinners, probably. <laughs> he, has, he, has, he has written plays. He has directed plays, musicals, operas. He's run theater companies. So Taswell uh, was one of the first black people to run a major regional theater that was Syracuse Stage. Uh, he's directed many works in the operatic canon, Porgy and Bess, Dialogues of the Carmelites, mm. more recently, um, Freedom Ride, which is coming up in February with Chicago Opera Theater, and then in June of this year, the opera Blue, that will be at Lyric Opera of Chicago, mm. and Blue was written with the uh, composer... Janine Tesori. Uh, that that production started at the Glimmerglass Opera. He's had a long relationship with Glimmerglass, uh, going back to, I believe, 2002, where he did uh, Poulenc's Dialogues of the Carmelites, as well as Gilbert and Sullivan, Benjamin Britten, um, Kurt Vile as Ooh. well. And just, he, he has this, so, he's just a, such a consummate theater artist, uh, and not least in this play that he wrote called Constant Star. This is a musical drama about the life of the 19th century activist and journalist Ida B. Wells. Mm. That's toured the U.S. It has, it has done many productions since then. Uh, he's won an NCAACP Theater Award, uh, nominated for an Emmy. And so to me, he's just that perfect combination of theater making and social justice and he's just there's not a bullshit bone in that man's body and in <laughs> his work taswell thompson oliver camacho who are you going to celebrate tonight well she's not necessarily american she's actually from trinidad but uh i'd love to talk to you about a soprano i probably mentioned on this show before but i really want to make sure those of you who are listening find her and and seek her artistry and her performances her name is janine de beek D-E-B-I-Q-U-E. Um, she has a website, uh, JanineDeBeek.com, which you can browse. She was an ensemble member at uh, the Vienna State Opera. Uh, she had sort of a breakout, which came from social media. Uh, will you actually... Oh, so I wanted to transition music. Skip, skip, skip the transition. We'll just, go, we'll just do the full clip. Um, or maybe you can play the transition as we go to the next segment. Anyway, uh, there's supposed to be a musical interlude here, but uh, anyway, we're going to pushing forward. I'm not distracted by it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she went to Manhattan School of Music, but her breakout 
was this rehearsal of her singing Rejoice Greatly. And I know many of you have seen it on Facebook. Oh, I know yeah. exactly the clip you're talking She's about. just like in the pulpit of some church, just like poning just the coloratura licks from Rejoice Greatly. Stuff. And then she went on to sing that aria at the BBC proms. Uh, but something else that happened that sort of brought her star higher in the uh, starmosphere in the stratosphere <laughs> <laughs> uh, was a production she did of La Clemenza di Tito directed by Peter Sellers um, at the Salzburg Festival. And there's plenty of video of that online. Um, I want actually to listen to a really beautiful excerpt of her singing the Mozart Kyrie from the Great Mass in C minor that she sang a cappella. And this video exists online. You can find it very easily. Her and Peter Sellers and some, I'm sure, uh, German priest of some sort are just standing there in this beautiful church where Mozart first uh, premiered the Mass in C minor. And she's just singing this, you know, opening movement a cappella. Just to give you an example of the mystery and beauty of her voice. This, this clip is about two minutes long. There was like two more seconds left of that. That's okay. That's, that's, the, that's, the that's not a perfect it. fade. Okay, great. <laughs> it was unresolved. Uh, it was not an unresolved cadence. Um, <laughs> oh, give me that crap. 
So if you watch this video, you'll see Peter Sowers. I mean, I know he's a very affectionate and loving guy. We have all heard all the stories, but he looks like he's on the verge of tears, just like watching her sing this. And oh, when, I, when I first heard this too, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that that works so well, acapella, just with her voice and that acoustic. Anyway, one of the reasons why I'm particularly fascinated by this artist is because she seems to be attracted to repertoire that is special to me. You know, she mm -hmm. she sings Mozart, she sings Handel, uh, she has got the attention of conductors like Theodor Corenzis, who you know is one of my favorites. So um, maybe she's going in an early music direction, but I've heard her sing live, and she's got chops. It's not a small voice, and um, she's a great storyteller. And she gave this recital at uh, Ravinia. I guess it was two years ago at this point where she was a very personal recital where she explained why she chose each piece and she almost gave like a lecture recital and she just like put everything out there for the audience hmm. and it was very vulnerable and almost borderline inappropriate but <laughs> it made it made the music speak that much more the like best she, kind of yeah concept. she knows like what the audience needed to hear in order to say this is why i'm picking this song listen for this you know and uh, I think there's a lot of musicians out there who want the audience to do the work and to like, you know, you have to come to the music. No, she really brought it to the audience, you know, mm. and she seems to be just really a great communicator. And I'm just so happy that somebody like her is out there to advocate for this type of music. I think that she could go in many different directions. It's not clear exactly what her voice type is. Like right now she's singing sort of light lyric repertoire, but uh, I heard her really sing in that recital. I know that there's power in there that has not yet been explored. So I'm just a, a very excited to see where this voice goes. Um, something that's really interesting little tidbit, uh, she is on this Netflix series called OA. I never watched it. Oh, okay. really? But yeah, she sings a Handel aria with piano as like part of this like set piece. Uh, I've, I only saw it on the internet. I don't know it that, I don't watch the show, so I have no idea <laughs> what, what the context is, but it's ravishing. It's Amio Kor from Alcina and it's ravishing. So oh, those of you who watch the, the OA, OA, you've already heard Johnny Depeak. I have no idea what the OA yes. is. <laughs> I think it's about sex or something. I don't for know. me, or OA stands for Opera America. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> my favorite Janine Debeek, everybody. Janine Debeek. We're going to play it out with another clip yeah, from like her as well as we, as we move into the next segment. Um, but here's news you can use for that segment. Ten easy ways to solve classical music's inaccessibility. It's up next on America's Talk radio show about opera. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Encoda. Endorsed by Sir Simon Rattle and Joyce D. Donato, Encoda is like a Spotify of scores. It's like, the, it's like the Netflix for new music. It's like the Hulu of <laughs> notes. <laughs> 
Encoda is a beautiful app for streaming the world's largest digital library of sheet music on subscription. They got your novellos. They uh-huh. got your recordings. Oh, they got yeah. your Baron Do They got your Calmuses, though. Do you want to have Calmus at your fingertips? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that's cleared up by now. Encoda has aggregated a hundred catalogs from your favorite publishers. Mm. That's thousands of titles, millions of pages of music at your fingertips. Hopefully you don't get a paper cut, but you won't because it's digital. Yeah, you'll, yeah, you'll a get a million little paper cuts. You'll get a you know? tablet cut instead. <laughs> okay. Practice, play, and perform off your phone, laptop, tablet, even your phablet. Wait, wait, what's that? <laughs> okay. That's your uh, phone tablet. You know those really big phones that only basketball players can hold? You Basically, know? you can play it on your smart toilet. Yes. The Enco- <laughs> Encoda app makes editing and sharing sheet music stress-free and easy. Search content, browse curated playlists, and discover new music by using unique smart technology. That's actually a really good idea. Like, what if you can have music on your refrigerator, those smart refrigerators? <laughs> like, so, like, as you're, like, standing there, like, trying to decide what to do, you could be practicing. Where know? is my milk? <laughs> this isn't for you, Oliver, because you don't do smart. Wherever you are, utilize all of Encoda's features and keep your entire library of scores in one place. Download Encoda from your app store today for free trial. That's N-K-O-D-A. And you could also go to Encoda.com to learn more. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box score. Thanks again for sticking with us this evening on America's Talk radio show about opera. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams on the show tonight. My family and I, we had a fabulous time yesterday afternoon at an American Hockey League game. So this is the minor leagues, you know, mm. the league below the National Hockey League. The Chicago Wolves and the Rockford Ice Hogs battling it out. We went with two other families. Ice Hogs? Excuse me? It was the first first hockey game that my uh, children had ever been to, and it was great. Great concessions, great game. Talk about pageantry. There's like a pre-game fireworks show inside the ice arena. Did they have a hog on the ice? They did not. They set off fireworks indoors? Yeah. Hmm. It's very yeah, my, irresponsible. My Hot daughter was like, aren't they going to melt the ice? She was, <laughs> she was worried about that. Um, but anyway, it was it was a really cool thing. Hey, before we get into the second segment, just want to get into the Lister mailbag briefly. Hmm. Laura in Baton Rouge writes, y'all, what a time to be alive. First, the LSU Tigers recovered from their initial deficit <laughs> and proceeded to beat the tar out of the Clemson Tigers in the national championship. Second, <laughs> this week's interview with Tamara Wilson was so interesting. It was my favorite I've heard on the show. As someone removed from the actual business of opera, I love getting to hear about the actual business of making choices as an artist and as a pragmatic adult in the modern world. Hey, thanks for listening. Laura, you're going to want to check out the link to this article. I just want to say before we move on, Houston Grand Opera, you might have a a ticket sale because of us. So we're happy to receive a cut of that. Just a little little off the top. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Go on, George. Sorry. Not at all. uh, Hey, let's hope they help us out. Um, The website's called The Daffodil Perspective. Link is on our website, operaboxscore.com. Article from earlier this week talks about the 10... Easy ways to solve the real reasons that classical music is inaccessible. I feel like one way to tackle this article is we just kind of go. Okay, point yeah, by let's point. just let's recap it really quick before we actually talk about let's it. Let's go for it. So, uh, this blog post is dated January 16th, but I think it actually that might be an update to the blog post because I've seen it circulating now for at least a week. Okay. And I've seen a lot of people debate some of its points uh, on the social medias. 
uh, this Daffodil Perspective seems to be like a radio show. Uh, and this is like a blog that uh, sort of goes along with the radio show. And here the author uh, is talking about that classical music right now condescends to its audience mm-hmm. and that we should look to other art forms for seeing how they have you know, made it easier for audiences to access the art without using, well, we'll read, we'll read the list now without using like, you know, convoluted language and uh, making, you know, people assume that people know music history and this type of stuff. So she wants everything to be much more easy for the audience. And we'll just read these points really quickly. Number one, stop using technical language in class, classical music literature. Number two, stop using pretentious language. Number three, stop using the word libretto to mean lyrics. Well, that's okay. Number four, (laughs) stop using Italian in piece descriptions. I have a bone to pick with that one. Number five, stop disparaging other music genres. Hmm. Number six, stop raising (laughs) classical music further up by saying it's the greatest music. I agree with that. Number seven, stop disparaging people who do create accessible music. Number eight, stop trashing classical music that uses melody. Number nine, stop only playing music by dead white men. Amen to that one, for sure. And number 10, uh, get off your complacent high horse and do the work. And this is, once again, by um, The Daffodil Perspective, authored by Elizabeth DeBrito, uh, the producer and founder of The Daffodil Perspective. So, uh, Wesson, you got one that you want to talk about? I've got, I've got a couple I kind of want to uh, sort of mention. I, I, first of all, I, I should say that the, the thesis of the article is a little unclear uh, as far as uh, I think, what the problem, what the central problem of inaccessibility is, because I, I do agree, there is a big inaccessibility problem with classical music. But I tend to think of that as being more of a uh, brand issue than anything. I mean, there are people who gatekeep, obviously, and those people are Oliver Camacho. Yes, but exactly. for, for the most part, <laughs> for the most part, yeah. Classical music people, I feel like, are kind of desperate to get their friends into to concerts with them. I know, uh, for me, I, I I always am. I I never am like, oh, you, it, you've only heard Beethoven's Night, <laughs> please, uh, you casual. No, I don't do that. I I I want to encourage more people to come and in, enjoy the music with me, so I can you know rant it at, about it with them. So I think there's something uh, a, a little bit. Um, a little bit of dissonance there, at least as far as the uh, as this article is concerned, because some of these things are things that individuals can do, and some of these things are things that maybe uh, organizations should be doing, but it's never quite the the line between them is not really delineated very well. However, I do agree with uh, uh, a, a large majority of them, at least to an extent. Certainly. The stop playing just dead white men is amen, hallelujah, please, mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I won't talk about the libretto and Italian thing because I'm sure Oliver will rant about that oh. for a little bit. Um, but the the technical uh, language in classical music literature, when it comes to advertising, sure. They give uh, uh, an example from the London Symphony Orchestra program uh, note. Uh, yeah, this in was 2019. Rich. This is this is, and I will say, I agree, a painful quote. Self-revealing pathos, this work seems more to be about avoiding darkness by underplaying the tonic minor key as much as possible. And yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense if you're just wandering into the the symphony hall for the first time. But at the same time, I would say that a lot of the technical language in classical music 
is actually a really good jumping off point for someone who wants to get into it. You know what I mean? Like there's a, uh, I think there are interesting conversations to be had where um, you're talking to someone to get them to go to the opera with you and you explain about why, uh, why certain things are certain ways, uh, the history of them. I think that leads to more investment actually, but it needs to come from a perspective of of bringing someone in rather than pushing someone out. That, I, that I, I, I don't sense. know. I mean, I don't know if people want things to be explained to them, right? Like, can't we just let the work speak for itself? I mean, no one wants to be outside the circle. No one wants to feel like they're dumb. No one wants to feel talked down to. We don't explain music videos. We don't explain <laughs> hip-hop music. We don't explain top 40 songs to people. You just experience them and you respond to them how you respond. So I don't, I don't know what the point is to because try and explain classical music to Top 40 and pop and all this stuff is stuff that people hear all the time. So if it's True. making a reference... It's, you know, the reference is usually not that far back or, you know, the, the music all sort of sounds alike. And there are ideas that there's obviously people making progress in pop music and in other genres. But you can see the relationship be between that and the thing that preceded it. Whereas for a lot of people, classical music genres, and there's so many of them, uh, they don't have a reference point. Exactly. And there's, there's, there's certain pieces that I think are hard for people to find the relevance for if they don't understand the historical background. Uh, like, for example, I was telling a person the other day, I was talking about the ring cycle, which is what I always talk about. Yes, um, we know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and now we've got the black ring cycle. But, but I, was, uh, I was describing how it, was, how it is often interpreted and possibly conceived as a radical... Um, uh, uh, possibly even anarchist allegory for uh, for what was going on in Europe at the time, which is not something that you understand from the text if you're just reading it straight without knowing anything about Wagner, anything about what was happening in Germany at the time. Um, but it is an interesting fact. And this person I was talking to, who's very into history, lit up and suddenly became... They went from a vague interest in some of the melodies to... I want to go listen to this now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're, uh, the, the fact is opera has a rich history and ignoring it can lead to simplifying the message that it can put across, if that makes any sense. So, you know, the argument she makes at the beginning of this article makes it sound like nobody has thought of this and nobody is doing anything about it. And she says the classical industry, music industry is at fault, blinded by centuries of pretentious, rich, privileged white male superiority. Mm. And that just sounds like a different argument that she's making about like life in general, you know, mm -hmm. but there are definitely organizations that, you know, are or, organizations I don't even always agree with, but I know that everybody's trying to work on this problem. They're, some are doing a better job of it than others. <laughs> True. <laughs> I would say a company like Opera Altelier uh, for example, is doing a great job of presenting something in its really purest form and going really hard for authenticity, but still making it accessible mm. and doing enough audience education and adding a healthy dose of sex, you know? And <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, they do. Yeah, it's I like, mean, yeah. yeah, and their marketing. And, um, and so, and then they put on like Luli's, Per se, which is like, 
an opera most people would not go to, but you see the marketing for it and you see the beautiful set design and you see the beautiful dancers and they make these beautiful videos of, you know, rehearsal process and why they picked this opera and how it's relevant to today. And you just like pique those people's curiosity. Now we're lucky with operas that we have a story to tell and it might be harder for, you know, instrumental music or, uh, yeah, symphonies. Things yeah. Like that. But you have to find those charismatic people who care about it enough and they know the thing that really speaks to the audience. Like I have a friend, mm. I won't say who she is, but uh, she is a leader pianist. She's a specialist in leader and leader piano and leader, a comp- collaborative piano, which I'm sure she would hate that I said that. Um, but she gave a lecture on Die Schöne Müllerin, mm. the song cycle by Schubert. Uh, it was sort of like a pre-concert type of deal. And she just made the suggestion that this like motif, and she played it, is the brook. And if you listen for this, you will hear the brook in basically every song. And, you know, the brook is a character. The water is the character in this song. And like, it's like the impetus, it's the catalyst for the beginning of the song cycle. And it's like there at the end when the poet commits suicide and like all these things like and you find and she just played it and she like gave a couple examples where else it shows up and all of a sudden you see in in the audience's eyes boom like this light goes off you know and now they can hear this you know whatever 50 minute song cycle and really know what to listen for because it's a long song (laughs) and if you don't speak german and you don't want to stare at your libretto the whole time your libretto the lyrics you know it's a long song you know well the 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 libretto this is a confusing point, right? It's related. It's related to terminology, right? Yeah. The article is about like how what words are we going to use to describe the art form without making it too pretentious? Change everything to English. Should we, he says, should yeah. we change everything to English? Well, what if English isn't your first language? Yeah. But the libretto, of course, that's not the lyrics to the song, right? Yeah. Like the libretto is in musical theater terminology the book, yeah. and the lyrics. Yeah. So that point is. That's actually not accurate. It's fine. She just wants people to know that libretto has to do with the words. That's fine. But other, she has other <laughs> bones to pick, like the word, get rid of the word scherzo. It's like, it's fun and joking or whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah, it is playful and joking, but scherzo has like a history. And if you understand how scherzo comes to be, then whenever you see the word scherzo, you know what the composer, either if it's in its really straightforward usage, like in the rom- early romantic period, you know what it means, or what it means sort of ironically or what it's being suggested at in later composers, you know, or like the word adagio, like adagio is a temple marking, but then there are pieces that are called adagio. And once you understand that adagio is yeah. used to mean something that's like solemn, you know, possibly depressing or, you know, pious or whatever, like it has that mood to it, like, right. you know, formidable, you know, then it becomes about an affect and it's not just a tempo, you know? Yeah, and all these things are, are, are ways to bring someone in, yeah. you know? When you explain about the adagio, yeah. how it means slowly, but it, there's actually so many more cultural implications. Yeah. That's sort of the shimmering, sort of diverse history of opera. That's where that is. And as long as you're not using it to beat back newcomers, opera companies can use those things to bring people in. We need more people, like you said, Oliver, more people to bring people to the opera. Yeah. Uh, and of all the people I know who've been to opera, very, very few of them just went one day on a whim and, and fell in love with it. 
Someone brought them into it. Someone yeah. sent them a YouTube clip. Someone uh, took them to the opera. Someone told them what to wear. Someone told them that right. don't worry, there'll be super titles. And if it was me, that'd be number one on this list. Yeah. Operas have super titles. Yeah. Advertise that and everything so that people aren't scared. Uh, it, it, these kinds of things, uh, we need personalities to bring people into the fold as it as And it I'll were. say don't don't underestimate audiences. Like people are willing to do the work. Like you see like these serial TV shows where there are podcasts devoted to like the inside of the show and like mm -hmm. di dissecting mm -hmm. small details and like you know what is the backstory and people are willing to do work for something that they love. They'll do the research so they can and get maximum enjoyment out of it. Opera does require some work to get the maximum enjoyment, but there are also some works that are very easy to enjoy, like Carmen, like La Boheme. Yeah. You don't have to do anything to enjoy those. You just go and listen. You know? We're, of course, talking about the opera angle. This yeah. article is about classical music yeah. in, in general. Well, we're an opera discussion. But I just, <laughs> we are opera yeah. box score, dang Yeah, it. but I, I mean, I, you know, as you go further down the list, I, I think we probably synchronize with more of these points. You know, stop raising classical music further up by saying it's the greatest music. I mean... I'm not doing that. I, that. That's not how I talk about classical music. Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of different genres of music, which I think are all equally great. I don't disparage people that create accessible music. Mm -hmm. Stop trashing classical music that uses melody. I, I don't. I can't think of anyone in my circle who doesn't like a piece because it's that feels melodic. like a very dated criticism. It, there, it does yeah. feel like something that you yeah. would have heard back in the heyday of the second Viennese yeah. school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did I, did I, I mean, that's what she's addressing? Oh, language dude, there? that I was so pretentious. Right, you, should, <laughs> you should read this article. Tell us what you think about this article. And if you have any points you want to debate, uh, you can post them on our Facebook page for this ad, uh, this Facebook ad for this episode. Or you can write to us at operaboxscore at gmail and we'll read your comment on the air. All right. Guess what these artists have in common? Tank and the Bangas, Elmo. Not really an artist, more of a <laughs> Muppet. <laughs> Taylor Swift and Joyce D. Donato. What do they have in common? Find out next. It's on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided in part by Haymarket Opera Company, presenting Elizabeth DeShong in concert on Friday, February 28th. Shong, 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 shong. <laughs> racist? <laughs> What's that? No, man. Okay. That's a famous hip-hop tune. Oh, really? Okay, so I wouldn't know. So I'm the racist one. Hailed by Opera News as an unstoppable presence and one of the finest new voices to be heard at the Met, Met-Soprano Elizabeth DeShong joins the Haymarket Opera Orchestra for an intimate evening of Bach and Tatas at the new Holtschneider Performance Center at DePaul University. It's, a, be beautiful, it's a beautiful venue, actually. It, it's fantastic. Great place. There are many things to like about it, but not the Florence lighting. That was... Um, <laughs> luminary keyboardist Yori Vinicor also joins the ensemble taking a turn as soloist in a concerto by Bach. Lighting, luminary, I saw what you did there. Oh, Which Bach? Uh, probably JS, I'm going to say. Johnny C. Bass. Yeah, definitely not yeah. Uh, CPE. Oh, PDQ. 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 Yeah. PDQ. <laughs> It'd be funny if George I, I love this played. PDQ reference <laughs> here in 2020. Tickets are now available for Elizabeth DeShong in concert on Friday, February 28th with the Haymarket Opera Orchestra. For more information, go to haymarketopera.org. This just in. 
the two-minute drill. All right, listen up, y'all. It's everything you need to know about Operaland from the past week. Zachary Wolf covers the Prototype Festival, including the world premiere of Ricky Ian Gordon's Ellen West in the New York Times yesterday. Look, if Prototype is unhappy with any of his reviews, they should remember that they had their chance to paper the house with some handsome opera podcasters from Chicago. Striking musicians and singers of the Paris Opera staged an open-air concert on Saturday in front of the city's historic opera house in protest against pension reform that seeks to end their special retirement scheme. The International Opera Festival, Bayreuth Baroque, is set to kick off for the first time in its history, 2020. This event will be led by appointed artistic director and countertenor Max Emanuel Tenchich. Opera Theater of St. Louis, Opera Philadelphia, and Santa Fe Opera are named the, quote, groundbreaking opera companies of America by American Airlines In-Flight Magazine. Hey, look, put two and two together, American Airlines. Give us travel vouchers to go to Santa Fe this summer so we can back up that claim. Countertenor Kangman Justin Kim and baritone Lucia Lucas will be sharing their stories of gender and identity through music and conversation in Beyond Butterfly and the Dawn. Pianist Zalman Kelber is going to accompany our friends of the show at National Sawdust in Williamsburg in New York City this Friday. Joyce DiDonato's Grammy-nominated record song play is now an NPR Tiny Desk concert. 20-minute set list includes Setumami and Tulosai. Links on our website. Ruzan Mantashian's representation has issued a statement regarding the soprano's involvement or lack of involvement at the Zemper Oper Ball. Look, this story is so damn confusing, we're going to have to just recap it after the two-minute drill. Uh, Boston Globe's Zoe Madonna gives high marks to the company debut of Enigma Chamber Opera. They did Turn of the Screw by Britain. Uh, Berlin Staatsoper Unter den Linden honored its contract with Placido Domingo, who appeared in Verdi's Traviata last week, but protesters visible, vocal outside the opera house. Royal Swedish Opera has announced Alan Gilbert will assume the post as the company's music director beginning in spring 2021. Recent flooding at the Dusseldorf base of the Deutsche Oper am Rhein has exposed deep-seated structural faults. It's going to require massive renovation or more likely demolition and a complete rebuild. Either way, the house is shutting for five years. Over the DL, Houston Grand Opera announced that conductor Christophe Rousset has withdrawn from the HGO premiere of Donizetti's La Favorite. Due to personal circumstances, HGO Artistic and Music Director Patrick Summers will conduct all five performances. Those start Friday. Exit stage left American tenor William Hawley, age 89, and Italian tenor Giorgio Merighi. He was 80. On the stage, January 20th, we commemorate the birthdays of composer Ernest Chasson, 1855, American composer and conductor Ava Jesse, who led her choir in the first production of Four Saints and Three Acts. She was born in 1895. Italian tenor Ugo Benelli, who was a specialist in tenore de grazia roles. He was born in 1935. Other birthdays, Hungarian conductor Ivan Fischer in 1951, the music director of the Opera Nationale de Lyon from 2000 to 2003. That was Fischer. January 20th, also the premiere date of Lortzing's Die Open Proba at the Oper Frankfurt in 1851 and Catalani's La Wale at La Scala, 1852. That is your two-minute drill.
<laughs> I'm so worried that there's going to be some young opera singer or student, you know, teenager who is going to look up say to mommy because they want a recording so they could learn their music and they're going to find song play and it's like yeah i heard of joyce another she's like famous right so that must be the way you sing it and they're going to show up at their nats audition or whatever their high school vocal solo competition they're going to try to sing it like stockings and a tuxedo jacket i love it that Stop. recording actually features Craig Terry, who is a local musician, artist. He's the artistic director of the Ryan Opera Center and accompanies some of those famous opera singers in the world in recital in addition to that. so That was, of course, from the Tiny Desk Concert, uh, which is the answer to your little riddle before the yeah. break, George. Thank you very much. I did not know that Elmo the Muppet performed in a Tiny Desk Concert, <laughs> but you show. learn something new every day. Elmo loves Tannhäuser. <laughs> oh, that was scary. <laughs> so a quick retraction. Uh, La Wally premiered in 18. Yeah, I blew that one. Yeah. Uh, La Wally. I just, that's not an opera title 92. of something I would go see. La Wally. It's, it's got a, a great aria. It's a weird little opera. That is for You're sure. You're a weird little opera, <laughs> Weston. You got me. You got me. You know what's a weird little story? Uh, the continuation of Ruzan uh, Mantasian. I'm so confused. Okay, yeah, we need. We okay. need a graph. We need a chart here. So uh, <laughs> it's a flow chart. How <laughs> what happened? If you, if you go back to last week's episode, this is when the story sort of broke. Uh, and that day, there was something from Matassian's representation that said that she had been fired. No, that was an ad in an Armenian newspaper or an Armenian right, press outlet. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, she uh, the the allegation was she'd been fired at the request of uh, uh, Yusuf. Mr. Natrepko, it's easier Mr. to say Netrepko. that. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Natrepko, because of her he, yeah. uh, Armenian... She's Armenian, he's yes. Azerbaijani. Exactly, yes. and there's a lot of history there um, of conflict between those two regions, which we cannot get into in the two-minute drill because it would take too long. Um, but that was the allegation. And then later that day, literally a few hours later, uh, the Semper Opera Ball uh, released a statement that said there's been some sort of miscommunication uh, with her representation, she was never actually set to um, go on, uh, 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 and it kind of chalked it up to basically a mistranslation of whatever was going on, and that seemed to be the end of it. There were uh, uh, there was uh, uh, Mr. Natrebko said that uh, he would never allow his political opinions to influence you know whether or not he was singing with someone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then, in a plot twist, uh, the representation of Montashian actually doubled down. And issued a statement saying uh, saying they expected an apology because she was apparently supposed to do it. So one of the two is, uh, they're both very convinced they're right, uh, which is starting to get a little suspicious. And we've even had like people, uh, I believe Renee Papa weighed in. Uh, he said, uh, as a Dresden native and as an ambassador of music, art, and anti-racism, I have to tell my esteemed colleague, Yusuf, not to bring any hate into my town or somewhere else. Ooh, so dang, you've got Rene Papa in, you know, he's got his claws out. Uh, yeah. So this Don't poke the bear. What Except to his be, voice was like three octaves yes, lower. Yes, down here. There um, we go. This is Rene. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That was my Renee Papa impression, my famous impression. <laughs> uh, so this this Here story has gotten weird and confusing. People either seem to be lying or really, really doubling down on uh, the misunderstanding. It's one of those things where the political tensions are high enough so that there could be reasons for people to cover things up. But it's yeah. the story's only gotten weirder over the past week. I I, I thought it was weird at the, the HGO with. Okay, so uh, conductor Christophe Rousset withdraws from the, the, the new production, um, Donizetti, 
La favorite. La favorite, yeah. Um, thank you. Due to personal circumstances, okay, like, it, it happens. You know, there's always those reasons. I, it's kind of a general statement. I mean, who am I to pry, right? But, I mean, <laughs> the show opens Friday. And, and if you're Patrick Summers, you're a pro, right? Maybe you've done the show before. You know, you've likely been hanging around the rehearsal room. You've got four days, okay? The, the show opens Friday. And one of those days is going to be a day off, the day before the show opens. So now you've got three days, which means you've got the show opens Friday, Thursday is off, Wednesday is the final dress, Tuesday is some sort of dress, and then you've got to, like, rehearse with the orchestra and do a zitz probe. So I... Cutting it close. I, 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 what is your point? I, that it's going to be hard is, for him? He is a, it's going to be <laughs> tough. It's going to be yeah. tough. That's tough. It's it's and he's rough. a pro. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there was an assistant conductor all along who is going to help. Hopefully. One hopes. Yeah. Uh, may I just and they are the same musicians that are in the pit. It's not like they've changed everybody, you know. <laughs> they took he took them all with him. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> took all their bows. <laughs> Those are my markings to the music. Get your own. <laughs> Start erasing. I would like to point out the irony of uh, a, a, a flooding of the Rhine destroying a German opera house. Uh, that was my another Ring Cycle reference. Everybody. I would like to make it irony. Point out the irony of Baroque music being performed at Bayreuth. Lots of good irony yeah. this this week uh, in Germany, particularly. I, I do love the idea that uh, I, I would love if this thing got so big as to be like uh, there was like a war between them. You know, the 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 Festspiele and uh, the, the Baroque. I could just see like you know factions forming in the streets and people rushing each opera house trying to tear it down. Uh, that's uh, that's that's what I think about it. Now. Well, and strangely enough, going back to the soundbite about opera companies being listed in the American Airlines in-flight magazine, Wild. this is not the first time that I've actually read about opera companies. Santa Fe has appeared in, I think it was this time last year maybe or two years ago. Opera America has really been pushing hard to get yeah. these opera companies' publicity. And, like, I don't... No, you people know, who read the in You know those little surveys that always fall out of your program and say, "How did you find out about this performance?" And it's like <laughs> an other. Uh, I was in the bathroom at <laughs> on my airplane or something. I read this Lots article. Lots of weird stories <laughs> yeah. this week. But uh, shout out to Justin Kim and Lucha Lucas who are doing a concert together. That's really exciting. I'm sure it'll be really hilarious and well performed and interesting. I wish I could go. And I have to say that this new company, Enigma Chamber Opera, this is our first production. Um, to get a review like that from the Boston Globe, like on your first outing, man, if we only had that type of journalism here in Chicago, yeah. you know, <laughs> that would to be pick awesome. up some of the things that that's happening around here, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's good. All right, y'all, let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Uh, great to be back in the Lakeside studio. George Cedarquist with Oliver Camacho and Weston. Williams, Weston, any good call or bad call from I you, sir? I finally made it to the encore of uh, Wozzeck last oh, week. Yeah. Uh, as you can expect, I loved it. Even the creepy puppet puppet boy, which, you know, is, you know... I love creepy puppets. I love Wozzeck. Yeah. What can I say? Yeah. Too bad it wasn't Elmo. Was the creepy, <laughs> <laughs> creepy Muppet. What a genius idea, Oliver. Yeah. Um, I want to shout out to Kareem Suleiman, who was our guest two weeks ago. Uh, his performance here in Chicago is this Sunday, January 26th, look up Chamber Music at Bethany on the internet. Hey, uh, shout out to one of our donors. Thank you to Paul 
in New Hampshire for throwing some money our way. We'll be getting some merch out to him. Of course, you two can donate as well. Operaboxscore.com slash donates. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general managers at WNUR, Henry Moskal and Somal Songvi. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from OperaBase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. It is the single greatest way that you can help get us in front of more listeners' ear holes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera with words beginning with M, L, and K. We're back next week on Monday, January 27, 9 Central, when stage director Jennifer Williams joins us inside the huddle. Plus more opera news, more hot takes, and more hot chocolate. Join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD1 Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.